the most fundamental layer of movement is position. And I really encourage you just to spend some time watching athletes in whatever discipline you actually care about. And when you pull up a video, just press pause at different moments kind of randomly as you watch that person move. And I guarantee you at different points in there, you're going to see just an organized, efficient, overall effective mover. And it really doesn't matter whether it's track or field or weightlifting or gymnastics or football or hockey or any other sport or movement discipline, because good movement is good movement. And good movement is nothing more than transitioning from one high support position to another. So if you want to express higher levels of fitness, backtrack to your movement. If you want to be a better mover, backtrack to your positions. So it all boils down to this. If you want elite fitness performance, you need to master high support positions. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver incredible training-related content to people just like you. I don't just podcast. I write in-depth fitness articles. I break down common movements in the sport of fitness. I program workout plans, and I offer one-on-one coaching for competitive and recreational athletes. And the best part is most of what I have on ZorFitness.com is totally free. Check out these resources by going to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. Hope to see you there. And welcome back to my rant on high support positions. So the reason I'm bringing this topic up in the first place is I really want to change the way you're thinking about movement through this episode. Viewing movement through a kind of high support positions lens just allows you to completely reorganize your mind in a new way and kind of grasp to a new layer what's going on in movement as a whole. And ultimately, that's going to allow you to improve your efficiency and effectiveness in workouts or the athletes that you coach potentially. Okay, so the outline of today is going to be four different parts. The first part is just answering the question, what are high support positions and why do they matter? Part two is going to be then what allows for expression of elite fitness? So we're talking about movement and mobility in that part. Um, In other words, like what separates you from an elite athlete? Like what's causing that separation in terms of actual position? Again, because the position is going to be what's making up the movement. Then we'll go into part three, which is how can you actually develop these high support positions? So principles that you're going to ultimately be able to apply to part four, which is going to be programming. So how do we actually apply these principles to a developing athlete? So that's going to be the progression that we go through today. Uh, Let's jump into part one. So what are high support positions and ultimately why are they actually mattering? So all movements are going to be following this pattern where we go from a high support position, go through some sort of transition to a new high support position. So ideally, you're either in a high support position or you're transitioning to another high support position. And the easiest way that this is going to go is just if I give you some examples that are a little bit more tangible and that'll make a lot more sense. But again, think about where you could press pause literally on like a video and like watch somebody and see where they're at and where they're at for a position. If you could press pause and they could probably stay in that position for a period of time, you know that is a high support position. Whereas if they couldn't actually maintain that position for any amount of time, um, then it's not going to be high support. It's like a transition period. If you're watching someone who's good move, like this could easily be the case where a person is just not a good mover and you're watching them go through a a movement and their position isn't good. So it's not going to be sustainable as a whole. But if we watch someone who is a really good mover go through these different positions, you're going to see them hit a high support position, then go through a very quick transition to another high support position. And those high support positions is going to be what allows for sustainability and potentially strength. 
So let's go to something like running. Running is going to have two fundamental positions, either a left footed figure four, whether your left foot's on the ground, you're in like a stork position almost, or your right footed figure four. So it's literally one foot's going to be on the ground and that's what's actually going to allow for the support. And then the rest of that actual running technique is where you're going to be bound there and kind of falling back and forth between those two feet. And we can say the same thing with like double unders. Double unders is only really going to have one high support position and that's when you're actually grounded. Same thing with chest to bar. There's really only one really high support position where the joints are stacked and that's at the bottom of the movement where you're in a hang. And again, this is just because the top of the movement isn't sustainable. Like, yes, it might be a strong position for some people, but relatively speaking, it's not a high support position. We can think about something like a jerk and it's going to be really obvious because it's going to be where an athlete breathes in this case. So they can either breathe in like a front rack or an overhead position, but they're not going to be breathing, especially under like a high load during the actual movement. So they're going to, you know, breathe in the front rack. They'll kind of catch their breath, especially if they just do clean. They'll brace and then they'll jerk it overhead to that high support position. So you think about bars resting on your, your collarbones, your delts in that front rack, and then you jerk it overhead. And now your joints are locked out again where you got wrist over elbow over shoulder. And that position was going to be what allows for high support. We could think about a thruster. The thruster is basically going to have three high support positions in the front rack and the overhead, no different than a jerk, but also in the bottom of a squat potentially. We could think of a burpee having three high support positions where the one's just where you're laying prone on the ground, but then you're going to pop up where you have both your hands and feet in contact with the ground at the same time. That's going to be a high support position. And then when you ultimately come up to a full standing, put your hips back underneath your body. Obviously, that's a high support position as well. Handstand pushups are basically going to have two high support positions where you're either in the tripod with your head on the ground and both hands, like three points of contact there, or if you're actually locked out overhead. Interestingly, a lot of things that are like bodyweight supported cyclical movements, so things like cycling, rowing, skiing, they're going to have an almost infinite number of high support positions where you could stop at any point in those positions. And because your body weight supported, it's going to be a high support position because it's just kind of the nature of the machine, you're grounded at all times. So when we're talking about these different movements and high support positions, we're often talking about gymnastics and weightlifting movements. So we could go through for every single movement within functional fitness and break down what these high support positions are going to be, but we can make this actually really simple where, and this is something that great athletes do in general, but they're going to take something that's going to be complex where we have all these different movements and it seems like all this stuff going on and they're going to make it simple. So I call this idea one pattern where it's the same pattern and you're just going to adapt that to different movements. So for example, if you can do a clean and jerk, you can do a thruster, you can do a front squat, you can do a push press, you can do a jerk, you can do front rack variations with dumbbells because it's all basically the same sort of thing. If you can do a clean and jerk, you can do all these other movements because it's the same pattern, one pattern. And this is something that we could just call like athleticism as a whole. Like people are going to pick up movements quicker. They're going to learn them. They're going to see the transferability quicker in these sort of environments when you can pattern recognition, when you see what shape you need to make and you can create that because you've been in other positions like it before. So I want to admit that this high support positions ideas is much more complex than I'm actually admitting right now. So if we take something like a four-time environment, so let's just say it's an open workout or something like that. And again, for something like a thruster, I said we have three high support positions. Well, if you're in a four-time environment and you're trying to be efficient in that environment, then the three high support positions of the thruster really gets cut down to one, which is really on the overhead position. So if you're going to pause at any point in that movement, it needs to be overhead in order for it to continue to be efficient to the highest degree. If we just talk about the breathing demands for one, 
If you are at any point stopping to breathe in that moment, you're wasting time and not only time, but you're also having that load on you while you're supposed to be resting. So it's a much better option to just get that bar off of you completely while you're resting versus like having it actually in a high support position. So like doing something like if it was like cleaning jerks, like do singles versus do like doing touch and go reps. If we think about like a thruster or a push press or anything like that, we have to remember that the breathing demands are kind of what dictates the movement and kind of the cadence of that movement. So in something like a push press, if you have that bar overhead and you pause with it in the front rack and you never do a touch and go rep for a push jerk and like put it right back over your head, that's really inefficient because if you think about your knees, your knees are going to be bending and catching and then they're going to have to do another dip and drive to get it overhead. Whereas if you're doing a touch and go rep, it's going to be a single knee bend and then it goes right back up overhead. And the only time that you're really able to breathe sustainably in a high support position is when it's overhead. If we're talking about a four-time environment or something where we just call it exercise racing, like CrossFit is, then we have to think about where's the opportunity cost for these different movements where yes, we might have a high support position, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to play nicely in terms of like your breathing mechanics or other things like that. So again, I want to go through this and not be super nuanced, but also understand that there are limitations for some of these movements, even being high support in a four-time environment. So I talked about the breathing demands and how in certain four-time environments, we're just not going to be able to actually use a high support position because we need to keep moving through it uh, just because of the breath cadence. The same thing can happen for a stretch reflex. And again, I'll call this like an opportunity cost in a four-time environment. So something like a bar muscle-up, technically it might even have two or three high support positions depending how you do it, where it could be in the hang, it could be in the bottom of the dip, it could be in the press out, or it could just be the hang and the support. But in a four-time environment, you are never going to pause in the bottom in like the hang of a bar muscle-up. Even though that is technically a high support position, you would never do that because you're just losing all of that stretch reflex and that momentum that makes it so much easier to do consecutive reps. But really, the only place someone's going to just relax and breathe and hold a high support position is in the support and the lockout of the dip of the bar muscle. That's the only place that's going to happen. And we can say the same thing with the back squat. I mean, we can see people with good mobility, they could sit in the bottom of a back squat and it would certainly be a high support position where they could sustain that for a long period of time. But if we're talking about trying to reduce the metabolic demands in a workout and we're trying to cycle through multiple reps, you're never going to pause in the bottom of the rep because you're losing the opportunity to use that stretch shortening cycle, that stretch reflex to take advantage of it. So you never would pause in the bottom of a back squat in a four-time environment, although you might do that in a training environment to build up that position. It's the same thing for things like handstand push-ups. It's a really poor idea to pause in the bottom of a handstand push-up where like your head isn't at that tripod. You're only going to breathe in the lockout because you want to be able to store that elastic energy on the eccentric so that you can use it right away on the concentric and that you're going to continue to push through reps and not pause in the bottom because as soon as you pause in the bottom, those reps get really grindy and that's ultimately just going to be inefficient. So now that we understand how complex this can actually be, let's make this simpler and go back to just weightlifting. So snatch and clean jerk, two movements that people know really well. So the snatch, while people can't lift as much, the movement itself is quicker. The snatch is going to have two high support positions with one transition between, where the clean and jerk is going to have three high support positions and two transitions between. Let's think about it. Snatch, you're going from the floor, which is one high support position, directly to overhead, which is another high support position. And because you're going directly overhead, it's a quicker movement, but you can't lift as much because you have to have a bigger range of motion in that pool. If we talk about the clean and jerk, 
you can hear in the name clean and jerk that there's going to be two transition points where you're doing a clean and then you transition again in the jerk and you're going from a high support position on the ground to a high support position in the catch of the clean in the front rack and then another high support position when you catch overhead. So as you're organizing your brain, just think high support position, transition, high support position. So in a snatch, it would be floor, transition, overhead. In a clean jerk, it would be floor, transition, front rack, transition, overhead. And remember, the biggest thing with this whole episode is just getting you to think about movement in a different way. So as we're thinking about this pattern of high support position, transition, high support position, and we just follow this pattern, we're going to see certain things show up. And one of these things is just the differences between certain standardized movements. So if we just take an example of a ring muscle up and a bar muscle up. So to the naked eye, these movements are really similar. I mean, they're both a pull to a press. They both have a transition. They're both doing the same thing around an implement. However, in a competitive scenario, these really are two different movements. With the ring muscle up, the dip is typically going to be required as a movement standard. So it's going to, again, have those three high support positions and those two transitions, kind of like a clean and jerk. Whereas a bar muscle up, you're going to almost compare that to a snatch because for most people, they're not, especially high level athletes, they're not really going to hold in that dip. They're going to go straight through that dip into a lockout right away. And it looks much more like a snatch where like the same kind of idea where yes, you bend your arms. Yes, you lock out again, but it's one movement where you're not going to do that in a ring muscle up. So we can almost compare a ring muscle up to a clean and jerk where a bar muscle up is a snatch. And that's one of the reasons why people can tend to get through more unbroken bar muscles. And that's besides the fact that it provides a higher support position in the lockout. And that's one of the reasons why it's more sustainable as well. So let's move on to part two, where we're kind of tying in movement and mobility with these high support positions and what's ultimately going to allow for expression of elite fitness. So someone asked me like, what separates me from an elite athlete? I would say like, you're probably going to run into one of two potential problems, probably both. And the first one's just like your positions actually aren't high support where you've broken lines. For example, if like you jerk overhead and your elbows are bent or you're trying to overhead squat and you can't actually get over your center of mass and it's always out in front of your body. Like those simple things, they're basic, but most people can't do them well. And that's one of the reasons why they're not actually allowing themselves to express their capacity. And the reason they're not able to express that capacity is because they're not relying on the largest, strongest musculature in the body. And they're having to rely on the smaller muscle groups. Like your delts aren't meant to overhead squat. Like you want your core and your hips and your quads to be overhead squatting. So it's just this idea that your positions aren't actually high support. And so it's not allowing you to express what you should be able to. And the second thing is just that your transitions between those high support positions are slow. And one of the reasons for that is because your positions aren't high support. If they were high support positions, then your body would allow you to get into those positions quicker. And as you can tell, these problems are often coupled together in the sense that a person who has poor positions can't rely on those positions. So they, by default, have to sort of, let's just call it like muscle through reps. And I kind of like that language of like muscling through, like not like it as in like you should try to do it, but just kind of like that idea of, I think it's a helpful analogy to think about this air. So if we think about what images come to mind when you hear someone muscling through reps, I think of a strong man doing a clean jerk where they do sort of continental clean where it's like popping up on their tummy and their power gut and they throw it up then and it's like in the front rack, but it's not actually touching their body at all. And then they sort of do this push press, push jerk thing where they use their legs, but because they're supporting the weight with their hands, it's like this really soft and it turns into like this push press where they're not dropping under the weight again because they don't have great range. And like all these things happen as compensations. And it's just because they're, if we just kind of boil this down, muscling through reps. And let's say the same thing for someone who's going like to do like a chest to bar where they're doing this strict, but not like beautiful strict pull-ups like you'd imagine. No, like they're doing the kind of pull-ups where you've like, yeah, you've been to prison, like that sort of strict, not like, you know, beautiful strict. 
And the reason we're trying to avoid this sort of muscling through reps is number one, it's just not athletic where if you have all your musculature turned on at once, it doesn't actually allow for movement. Like you're, you're just like flexing essentially where you're creating a really big contraction and a lot of work, but you're not actually allowing any power to get expressed because everything's turned on at once and you don't need everything to get turned on at once. And actually that's kind of the enemy to efficiency. So the goal is for you to use just the musculatures that is needed and nothing in addition to that. And being able to not just turn on muscles at the right time, but be able to turn them off quickly is some, what I would kind of define as athleticism. Number two is just not efficient at all. If we think about someone who is super efficient and is not muscling through reps, like let's just like think of like a rich running. If you watch him work out, it doesn't look like it's high effort. Is he actually moving quite slowly? But in this case, slow, smooth, and smooth is fast, where he's actually getting through that workout much quicker because he is moving so smoothly through that. And it's because he can distribute that work across the time better than anybody else. That's why he's the best in the world. And the next reason why we don't want to be muscling through reps is just because it's not sustainable. Like once a local muscle fatigues, because everything's turned on at once and you're only relying on a certain muscle to get through and not a systemic response where you're able to kind of spread out that muscular work across multiple systems. When the local fatigue rises above the systemic response, which is kind of inevitable in this case, you're just going to be reaching muscular failure and that's, you know, you're not gonna be able to move anymore. And that's just unfortunate reality. And then lastly, this is just not going to be expressing your potential and it's just going to show up as a, let's just call it a skill limiter because you're not able to organize your joints quickly and you're not able to actually express that motor control in a workout setting. So let's take someone who's complete opposite of that now. So let's take someone who's a really good mover. A person who's a good mover, they have good positions as we kind of broke down before, but they're forced to rely on those positions in order to actually get stronger and be able to move bigger loads. So for a person who is a poor mover, they're going to rely on muscling through reps. They're actually going to make that issue worse. Whereas a person who has good positions, they're going to have to be forced to rely on those positions. So those positions get stronger. So it's sort of like this catch 22 where they're sort of in it or out of it. It's not that case. Like I'll break down how we can actually teach an athlete to rely on their positions more, but really it just comes down to actually developing those positions. So next, let's go into the role of mobility and how that is going to kind of play into this. So we're going to have three categories of people. We'll have someone who's, let's just call them tight, someone who's laxed, so they're kind of hypermobile, and then someone who's functional. The functional person, that's kind of the ideal that we're talking about here. So someone who is tight, this person is lacking range, so they don't have the range of motion that they need, so they can't dynamically claim a neutral position. So this is the person who goes to do a split jerk and then catch with like bent elbows and the bars out in front, and they just try to like hold it there and muscle through. So I call this person sort of like the grind till I die mentality, where they're not efficient, they're not actually distributing the force across their muscle groups. So rather than being able to rely on their quads and their core and all these other muscles while they're doing a jerk, they have to rely on their pressing ability because they don't have a high support position to distribute that load or that force. So they don't have any force distribution in this case. So it's all relying on a single muscle group. If you rely on a single muscle group, that thing is going to burn out. You're going to be forced to rest. Like think about doing strict handstand pushups versus kipping. It's the same thing. You're distributing that force across more muscle groups in the kipping. So you're able to do more. If we compare that to someone who is lax, so this is this person who, again, is hypermobile. They're going to have all the range that they need, but they lack the stability in that range. So they're not able to actually find tension in the correct positions. So that's what I mean by lax. So this person is kind of loosey-goosey. They don't have a great relationship with tension. So for this person, either they don't have any tension and they don't have a sympathetic response to a lot of exercise going on, which is actually pretty common in a lax person who is a type B personality, or they have a maladaptive sympathetic response where either the timing of that response is off or like they're, they're blowing up early in workouts because of that, which again is a super common problem, but it occurs more 
in that demographic or that SNS response um, is maladaptive in the sense that it is triggered by the wrong thing. So instead of it being correct timing to work out or a strength piece, now we're having that show up in maybe more so endurance pieces or triggered by stressors in your day-to-day life. And lastly, if we go to the functional person, they're going to get the best of both worlds where they're going to have the stability from the tight person, which is the one good thing about people who are tight is that they tend to have stability because they have so much more tension. Whereas people who are lax, they don't have that stability, but they have all the range. So for the functional person, they're getting both the stability and the range where they can dynamically claim that position, but they can also organize their joints quickly into those positions in order to actually create that high support position. It's not just the high support position, but it's also quick transitions between. This is the skill. This is the motor control that we're talking about. And if we stick on this functional athlete, yes, they're going to have both the stability and the range, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those things are going to result in an elite performance. When someone has both those things, that means that they're a good mover, not that they're an elite performer. So it's very possible that this person could be reliant on elastic energy and eccentric and concentric nature of movement to use that stretch shortening cycle, that they're relying on that elastic energy in order to be efficient and that they don't have what's just called an engine. And this is relatively rare, but it certainly happens. I would say this is probably maybe 1% of the population, but it probably jumps to like 5% if we're talking about teens only. So people who are younger, who are kind of more springy and resilient, they're going to tend to run into this problem more often. And I would say this is probably 10 to 15 percent if we're talking teen female athletes. And I had explained this before in episode five on training on the assault bike, but basically the gist is someone who is really good at absorbing and let's just call it storing energy from eccentric work so they can take advantage of that quote free energy during the eccentric portion using that stretch shortening cycle to get really efficient kind of springy while this person might be really good at cycling through squats, if you added a pause, their performance would drop dramatically, where this person's really good at going through multiple reps of toes to bar and kind of a hinge pattern. Yet, if you put this person onto an erg or prowlers or sleds, it's sort of a grindy pace or something like rope climb, where you're not actually able to take advantage of that eccentric portion, then their performance is really going to dip. So just because someone is a good mover and they have good positions does not mean that they're going to have an engine. It could just be the fact that they have really good positions that they're able to take advantage of that stress shortening cycle in a lot of workouts that are gymnastics and weightlifting biased. So the easiest way to be able to test for something like this is just go to something like an open performance and go back and look at all those workouts, the programming of those workouts. And if there were any pieces where you weren't really able to take advantage of that stretch shortening cycle nearly as much when something like burpees and rowing or something like that, where you're forced into a grindy scenario where you're not able to use a lot of that elastic energy, see how you did on those. If you did okay, then you're probably just fine. So for this good mover who doesn't really have much of an engine, that's going to be a huge dip in performance on certain workouts like that. Okay, so let's dive into part three. How do you improve your high support positions and the transitions between them? So three different principles that I want to go through here. Principle number one is spend time in positions. So this is positional strength, and I'll often program positional holds, which I'll talk about more in part four, Um, but that's the main way that I develop high support positions for my athletes and beyond just reinforcing good movement and requiring good movement of my athletes and explaining why it's so important to principle number two here, prioritize the quality of the movement over the quantity of that movement. So something like mobility work, in order for it to be functional, if we're talking about functional mobility work, by definition, it means that you're improving your positions. That's what mobility work is. So principle number one, spend time in positions. Principle number two, prioritize quality over quantity. And then principle number three, focus on gymnastics and weightlifting. So for most people, if you're trying to improve the way that you move, 
do things that require you to move well. And gymnastics and weightlifting are two of those examples. And I also really encourage people to be able to identify good movement and not just in yourself, but like actually starting in other people. So watch film of people who move well or watch people in your classes who move well, study what they're doing and try to learn from them. So in the show notes this week, I'm linking to the 2159 complex from the 2014 CrossFit Games. It was all weightlifting and gymnastics and you get to see the best in the world. In this case, it's Rich Froning's Heat and you get to see them play with two barbells. You get to see them on the barbell itself and then the pull-up bar. And those are the only two things. And they're just going back and forth between those two movements, that gymnastics weightlifting pairing that you're going to see in a lot of CrossFit style workouts. In order to be successful in those sort of workouts, you have to have really good positions. So go check out that video. I embedded it in the show notes and I also have an outline for this show. So go to zorfitness.com slash podcast slash 014 in this case. And I love watching the old vintage clips of the games because you get to see people who are elite, the rich runnings go against people who now would never even be at a sanctional event because the, the sports just evolved so much. But the good news from that is that you get to see people who are truly elite at what they do and the best in the world at what they're doing. People like, you know, Matt Frazier's, the Tia Toomey's of like now get to compete against sort of like a middle of the road, sort of like a pretty good athlete who had an engine and could get to that level, but certainly is suboptimal and would really never be at the games today. So anyway, I encourage you to go watch some old games footage and actually be able to watch this in action and pay attention to their high support positions. Okay, so let's move on to part four on programming. So the first thing I want to talk about is those positional holds that I mentioned earlier, which is just developing that positional strength or these high support positions, which is all what we're talking about today. So I pulled some screenshots from Bulletproof Body Accessory Work for Functional Fitness, which has actually been my all-time most popular program that's um, been purchased on the site. But anyway, I got four different pieces here that I pulled from that. And once again, I plugged them into the show notes so you can actually visualize them if you go there. First one is four rounds, not for time. So kind of inherently, that means for quality. A 30-second squat hold, so just a bodyweight air squat, holding the bottom of the squat. 30-second dead hang, so you're just relaxing, holding onto the pull-up bar. I'm getting traction and pulled into a good position. And then 30-second ring dip hold. So you're holding the bottom of the ring dip, which is one of the high support positions I already talked about for the ring muscle up because you have to pass through the dip. Another one would be three rounds with 90 seconds rest after each round. It'd be a 30-second kettlebell goblet squat hold, a 30-second front lever ring hold where it's on the low rings, like they're almost at the ground. You're basically holding a plank on top of the rings, but you're forced to, again, create a position through your shoulder and elbow um, and dynamically stable through rings, which are naturally unstable, but it helps develop that support position for the lockout of the ring muscle up. And then a 30-second wall-facing handstand hold and the wall-facing just requires a little bit more of a hollow body position, which is reinforcing good position here. Another piece would be four rounds, four quality of a 15-second single arm or ring row hold. So you're holding just one ring in one hand, just like you'd be doing a double arm ring row like you traditionally would. One arm like that, holding it at your chest. So you're creating that position that you would at the top of a pull-up or chest-to-bar. A 15-second bottom of push-up hold, but making sure that only your hands and toes are touching the floor. And then a 15-second good morning hold where you're hugging a dumbbell towards your chest while you're doing that. So all these different positions, you know, hinging, pulling, pressing, like creating all these different shapes that are required for the sport. And you have to have all these positions to be able to express high levels of fitness. 
And besides positional holes, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of programming is compensation patterns and kind of how you can either learn using these or you're ultimately going to be leading to failure and just kind of sloppy positions on through this. This is going to be mostly easy if I just give you an example, explain what scenarios this is actually going to occur in. So I'm going to be programming workouts for athletes that have this sort of binary result where they're going to be reaching a high level of movement specific fatigue in a certain workout. And they're either going to be trying harder to muscle through those reps and they're going to fail at doing that. So, you know, result number one is that they fail, which certainly does happen sometimes when you program these sort of workouts. Or two, they will reduce local muscular work and find tension in high support positions and spread out that and rely on the prime movers and large muscle groups, especially the hips, kind of regardless of what movement it is, relying on the hips is always a good thing. And find a way to sort of survive that piece, which that would be success, a survival in this case. So you're either failing the workout because you're relying on those old patterns and compensations, or you start to find a new way of doing it that is actually more efficient and relying more on larger muscle groups and creating efficiency, and you're going to be actually making it through the workout. Um, so just so you know, most of the time when you do this as a coach or your self-coach athlete, most of the time when you do this, this is not going to end well for you. I've actually only done this with very select athletes and select doses for certain movements. And I know that's you know mouthful, but really just be very careful about when you're programming this type of workout. It needs to be for a specific athlete where you set everything up just right and you know that athlete very well and you're able to create an environment, not just sort of through your programming, but also talking to that athlete so that they know what is going on. Thinking about this type of workout, you want to be distributing the muscular work. You want to have high support positions involved. I mean, you want it to either be gymnastics, weightlifting, or some sort of pairing between those two. So three rounds, we're resting one-to-one -one between those rounds. So if it takes you 90 seconds, you're going to rest 90 seconds and repeat it. 25 unbroken push-ups directly into, so in other words, no rest, directly into 15 unbroken push jerks at 155, 105. And let's we'll just say that's a you know, moderate weight for that athlete. So you can already see that you're creating local fatigue during the push-ups where that athlete's lockout is really going to be fatigued and they're not going to be able to rely on that local muscle to get work done. Whereas if that athlete really tries to muscle through and use their arms to lock out in that push jerk, they're not going to be able to do that because they reach such a high level of fatigue. So they're going to either fail reps or they're going to figure out how to get more efficient by using their hips and not relying on their arms and be able to transition between two high support positions of a front rack and overhead position and not relying on the grind. So it's going to be necessary for that athlete to speed up their transition time and to spend more time in those high support positions and rely on them more. So again, that's the kind of scenario that we're trying to lay out. We're trying to make this athlete reliant on those high support positions so that they actually use them in all kinds of workouts. Another example would be every 30 seconds for 10 minutes, you're going to do one power clean at 87% of your one remac. So a very heavy battery effort in this case. For an athlete who really relies on a big pool, maybe with their arms, or they don't have a great position in their front rack when they catch, again, this is going to end up in two different camps where either that athlete is going to break down and they're not going to be able to get more efficient, or they're going to actually have to rely on a better position in the front rack. They're going to have to rely on more of their hips in their pool and less arms, and ultimately they're going to get into a better position, even though it's going to be a very high effort in that workout. And again, we have to realize that that's not going to happen most of the time, that most of the time these athletes are going to fail these workouts, but for the right athlete at the right time, you can probably get a much better chance of someone actually getting in the right environment for this. And then lastly, it would just be a 20 minute EMOM of three bar muscle ups. Again, this is every minute on the minute for 20 minutes, you're doing three bar muscle ups. So again, this has to be for an athlete who we know can handle this sort of volume, who we know could probably be able to repeat these sort of contractions over at least most of this time. 
but also just putting this just at the edge of their threshold where that's really necessary for them to use their hips really aggressively in the bottom part of that. So again, we're distributing that work across as many muscle groups as possible to be able to get that work done and making sure that we're not relying on just tension through the lats and the biceps to be able to get that work done. So distributing that work and that force across as many muscle groups as we possibly can and teaching the athlete to do that while they're tired. This is something that is very challenging to do as a coach and an athlete, but if you're able to kind of master that, it's going to be something that is a game changer for you. And truthfully, I think this is one of the hardest things to do is to take someone who doesn't understand these things intuitively and be able to teach them to do it well. So to be able to teach someone who has anxiety to be able to have a correct breath pattern and be able to use their diaphragm, that's really challenging compared to a lot of elite athletes who might do that naturally. Taking person doesn't necessarily have a ton of tension and be able to express strength really well and power and be able to teach them how to kind of mentally and physically cue up to be able to lift this very heavy weight and to be able to actually be uncompetitive in terms of strength against a field who probably much more naturally does that is an extremely challenging thing. To be able to teach an athlete who does tend to muscle through reps to be efficient and to be able to find high support positions to be able to transition between them effectively and crisply. This is what we're talking about. This is what it's all about. To be able to find new levels of performance in your own practice is so challenging, but it's so rewarding as well. It's going to be what takes you from being an average athlete to a good athlete, from a good athlete to a great athlete. So thanks for listening. And now it's time to go rely on those high support positions. Here at the end of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank you. Whether you've been here since the very first episode or you just started listening, either way, I'm super thankful that you're here. And I love hearing from you guys. If you're on Instagram, shoot me a DM at ben.wise or at Fitness. And while I have your attention, I want to ask you for a favor. And that is just for you to continue to support the show by continuing to listen, continuing to share these episodes with your friends that would enjoy it, continuing to review it or give it a rating. And by the way, I'm going to keep offering those free programs indefinitely as a way to say thanks for that. And then the last thing I want to really encourage you to do is to get on our email list. So that is where I send out all of my free content that I create. And as an email subscriber, you're going to get early access to all the content that I put out through Zor. So if you want to stay up to date in terms of what I'm putting out, what I'm creating, that's where you should go to sign up. The easiest place to do that is just warfitness.com, the homepage. Plus, when you sign up on the homepage, you get a free download of the Cyclical Supremacy program. So be sure to head over there. And until next time, stay the course.